Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. Today, I'm talking with Mecca Jamila Sullivan about her critically acclaimed debut novel, Big Girl, which came out this past summer. Previously, Mecca, who is an associate professor of English at Georgetown University, published The Poetics of Difference, Queer Feminist Forms in the African Diaspora, and the award-winning short story collection, Blue Talk and Love. Earlier this month, she appeared at the Miami Book Fair. Mecca, welcome to Read More. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Big Girl is a coming-of-age novel about Malaya Clondon, a girl growing up in Harlem with her parents, Naila and Percy. The story takes place in the 80s and 90s. Malaya is a very smart girl who is also a talented visual artist, but instead of truly being celebrated by her family for these things, she is constantly chastised about her weight by her mom and her grandmother, Mamere. At eight, she's being dragged to Weight Watchers meetings, her food choices are policed, and throughout her childhood, she's taken to appointments with various medical professionals about her weight. She also faces taunts from children at her school, the nearly all-white Galton Elementary Academy for the Gifted, and the abuse doesn't stop there. She also gets it from her aunts and cousins and from random people on the street. Um... Malaya is such an interesting character. I didn't intend to read this book, uh, Mecca, in a day, but I just couldn't yeah. stop myself. Wow. Uh, the day after I read it, I woke up with Malaya on my mind. Yeah. How did this character first start speaking to you? Mm, that's a really great question. First of all, I'm so glad that you felt that you connected to Malaya and to her story in that way. You know, I... I came to this story partly because of my love of coming of age literature as a child. I started reading, you know, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, Antozaki Shange's novel, Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo, all of these coming of age stories that were written for an adult audience, right, but centered the lives of young Black girls. And I kind of stumbled across these books in my mom's library. You know, you knew that they weren't necessarily intended for me, but they really sort of helped me to see that the life of a young Black girl could be something to write about. And so I connected with those stories, you know, in the same way that I'm hoping people connect with Malaya's story. And yet at the same time, I felt there was an important element of my own coming of age experience that wasn't, that I didn't see centered even in those stories that I connected with so much. And that was that story of being a girl in a bigger body. And so from that time, honestly, from the time I was Malaya's age, I was thinking about how, how important her story would have been to me to read. And so it was very important to me to kind of contribute, you know, that perspective to what I saw as a really important body of literature. Well, as I was reading this book, I was thinking about the fact how it's routinely said that in the Black community, we're more accepting of different mm -hmm. kinds of bodies. In fact, you know, we're criticized for this as, you know, I kept waiting for somebody to say, oh, you know, that baby's okay, or, mm -hmm. you know, leave Mal Malaya alone, but that never really came. I mean, I guess the closest we get to it is through her father, Percy. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it also reminded me of something I read on Twitter uh, a while back. There was this discussion about how we praise women like Jill Scott, but we put down Lizzo. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole idea about there's a right way to be a big girl and yeah. a wrong way. Yeah. Uh, you know, we also read about pop culture and how that negatively uh, influences girls, you know, to uh, what they, with unrealistic uh, body images put up as the ideal. 
And of course, Malaya isn't immune to this. You know, she's growing up in the wider culture, but the harshest criticism that she faces comes from those who are closest to her. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to explore fat phobia in the Black community? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So there is, I think, this sort of widespread, you know, narrative that, as you said, Black people are more accepting of fatness and fat bodies. And I think that goes hand in hand with another sort of misconception that Black people do not care about our bodies, our health, right? And so you have this sort of really interesting dichotomy where the only way to care about one's health is to be fat phobic. And a community that we sort of decide doesn't care about that, that their health has to necessarily be not at all fat phobic and super accepting of fat bodies. And in my experience, neither of those is true, right? I mean, there is, you know, a kind of tremendous sense, especially when you think about, you know, Harlem in the 90s, you know, late 80s and into the 90s, where when the novel is set, there is this whole sense of kind of like this Afrocentrist, you know, sort of thinking about the spiritual self and the bodily self and as the way of connecting to a, a version of a Black identity you know, health foods are constantly circulating. There's, you know, people are selling herbs and there really is this sort of um, intense uh, kind of attention paid to having a healthy body um, as part of, again, a kind of like spiritual health, communal health. And Malaya finds herself on the outside of that conversation as well, right? That like, you know, the other part of it to me is that often that narrative of, you know, Black people are accepting of fat bodies and especially of fat women a lot of that comes down to this idea, well, it's because Black men like a woman with some meat on her bones, right? And what does that mean for a little girl who should not be, you know, the kind of interest of Black men? And she, you know, turns, she grows into a queer woman where the objectification and that sort of external sexualizing gaze from men isn't and shouldn't be what defines her self-worth, right? So the, the question of whether she's eligible for desirability is not and should not be how she defines her health, her relationship with her body. So in many ways, Big Girl is her path toward kind of figuring out all of that for herself on her own terms, navigating the realities of fat phobia in Black communities, and also deciding that she can define health for herself using her body as her guide, as opposed to whatever external signifier or, you know, sort of whatever the doctors say, or even what her mom and this community of women around her have to say. And so your point about the, you know, the kind of most, the harshest criticism coming from within, I find that that often rings true, especially in the experience of children, right? The people who are closest to to us as children are the ones we depend on most, which means their opinions tend to loom really large, you know? And at the same time, I'm not a parent, but, you know, as my experience as a child and sort of talking with, you know, younger people, the voice of the parent becomes really important for the child, but likewise, the child becomes a kind of important, um, you know, sort of barometer for a parent, right? So that if your child is doing well, you are doing well. And so if you're, you know, your investment in your child's well-being ends up being kind of a reflection on you, I think that's especially the case for women, right? Where, you know, Naila is really preoccupied with policing not only Malaya's body, but her own body. And it takes Malaya some time, but she comes to realize that that didn't just come out of nowhere, right? That Naila herself gets that from Mamere, the grandmother. And so she starts to see that this internalized fat phobia and it, you know, that's connected to all of these other sort of internalized um, experiences of shame 
that those are inherited across generations. And seeing that allows Malaya to then make a decision about whether she wants to continue that cycle or whether she wants to take a kind of deliberate action within herself to change it and create another sort of realm of possibilities for herself, but also for her community. Well, when I first started reading this book, I thought, oh, you know, Nayella must be a thin woman, you know, mm. which makes her react to her daughter this way. But as you said, she's not. Right. And, you know, neither is her mom. Nice. And we see throughout the book, you know, Nayella and Mamir are overly critical of themselves mm -hmm. and their bodies. And that criticism extends to other women as well. At one point, very early in the book, Nayella says to Malaya, you see these women, biggest houses over there. I hope you don't ever get that big. And Malaya responds, I won't. And then her mom just goes on, you know, she says, mm -hmm. I hope you don't because like they are very unhealthy. They lead very unhappy lives and usually they die. Mm -hmm. And, you know, first of all, who says that to a third grader? Right. Uh, but also there are all of these assumptions tied into that. You know, they don't know these women. They're just women they see walking. Mm -hmm. You know, who says they're unhappy or who says they're unhealthy even for that matter? And of course, everyone dies. Mm -hmm. So right. Right. why did you want to address these assumptions because they have them not just about these strangers that they see but they seem to make these value judgments about everyone every woman they see right yeah I mean I really appreciate that question you know I think in many ways this for me at least sort of rings true with how women are socialized to kind of relate to themselves and to one another I would think we see this in queer communities as well sort of you know, sort of talking about someone else can be a way of bonding, right? And, you know, if we think about that in a broader context, you know, this is what, this is often what tea is, right? Like, you yeah. know, we're going, you know, sit down, we're going, you know, spill the tea. Often that is about having a critique, right, about someone else that helps us understand ourselves better, it shores up our sense of ourselves, and the sense of bonding and community and intimacy, right? Um, and I think when we put, you know, body shame and body stigma in the mix, the, the stakes become all the more intense, right? That like, it's so urgent to be seen as attractive as a woman. So if we can, you know, stigmatize other women's bodies, it ends up shoring up that sense of our own attractiveness, our value in society, right? And, you know, I think for Naila, certainly this is not conscious because it's inherited from her mother. That That sense of sort of talking about other women as a way of, of bonding, that's an important part of the relationship between Mamere and Naila, right? As adult women, that this is how they this is how they spend time with one another, even though it's like pressing a wound, right? Because as you said, no, nobody in this family is thin. None of the women in this family are thin. So if you're talking about, you know, fat women on the street or fat women at the family event or fat women in the at the table right there with you, you are in some way also talking about yourself. And this is something that they all, they experience the, the kind of, you know, the humor of bonding, right? And, the, you know, there is a kind of levity to those conversations. They experience the pleasure of intimacy and bonding at the same time as they experience this sort of pierce of shame. And, you know, in some ways I see Malaya as like an opportunity to kind of step outside of that. An eight-year-old is, is able to perceive, right? Like they feel when something is just like a little off. They feel when something doesn't make sense. So in the scene that you just mentioned, right, Malaya's like, of course, I'm not going to be big as a house. First of all, I'm not a house, <laughs> right? Like, right. you know, and so her, the way, her way of thinking about it is like, either someone is born that way or they are not, and I'm not, right? 
you know, obviously it's this is a, a young person's perspective, but it points to how illogical that framing is in some ways, right? That like, to, like you said, who says that to a third grader? This is the third grader's critique. And so I find that, you know, for me, Malaya's perspective on diet culture, on body shaming, on fat stigma, really is some, in some ways, a kind of breath of fresh air, especially early on when she's like, this just doesn't make sense. What are y'all talking about? I want to go eat my French fries and play on the courtyard and have a good time. Another thing that is constantly, uh, the mother and grandmother constantly harp on uh, Malaya about is this idea that happiness is only found in thinness. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed through the book that Naila and Mamer say they're absolutely, you know, they're, they're sharpest barbs for any woman who is big, who is not full of self-loathing like mm -hmm. they are. And do you see your work being a critique of these ideas and of diet culture? Mm -hmm. Because I know reading this and, and the way you describe Weight Watchers meetings, I mean, it was just grotesque what they're mm -hmm. asking these women to do. Yeah, absolutely. I do see it as a critique of body shame, for sure, and of diet culture in the sense that, you know, at the time that Malaya is growing up and the time that this, this novel is taking place, we don't have language like body shaming or diet culture, right? You know, fat phobia is not a language that's really being used outside of, you know, very particular research settings, right? You know, social science research. Um, also, the idea of health at every size doesn't exist yet, right? Or at least, you know, not in that phrasing. And so Malaya really has to kind of like find her way outside of diet culture, which at the time really is just culture. It is the culture, right? It's like, it's like what they say about other forms of oppression. It's not the shark in the water. It is the water, right? This is the, this is the way the world is functioning at that time. And, you know, in some ways still now, I think we can still think about how, you know, if you walk into a room and, you know, mention that you've had a significant weight loss, the first question you're going to get, how did you do it? people will be very much interested, right? And sort of like how they can, you know, sort of move closer to thinness. Um, so yeah, I think it's absolutely, you know, Malaya's story I think shows us some of the consequences of the kind of ubiquitousness of diet culture and even beyond diet culture, body shame, right? Because it, you know, Malaya's experience is about fatness, but I've had conversations with readers who have said that they really identify because they were always told that they were too thin or that they were, you know, that their body was too curvy, right? Or that their body was not curvy enough, right? This notion that whatever is happening with our bodies is wrong and has to be changed, that, you know, that change is urgent and it's our, our value will be determined by our ability to change our bodies in a specific way. Um, to impose that on an eight-year-old, I agree with you, right? It sort of feels grotesque. And yet, you know, it really has been um, sort of moving and striking to see how many people I've had a chance to talk with, right, in talking about this book, who have said, I was that eight-year-old at that Weight Watchers meeting, right? So it feels grotesque, but it, it's not necessarily unusual or uncommon um, in our society. And so it really is important for me to kind of put that out there and, and you know, really have those like real conversations about what we really are doing, even when we might claim that we are, you know, sort of anti-fat phobia, right? Like, how are we really living? And what are we really teaching our, our, you know, our families, the people we care about, not only in terms of what we say to them, but what they see in how we treat ourselves. Well, this kind of goes um, it's along those lines. In you know, in the novel, we see 
Malaya eat massive amounts of food. It's mm-hmm. almost like she can never get enough. She can never be full. You know, she's always looking for something to fill that empty place inside of her. And there's also not a lot of tenderness in her life, not a lot of physical contact. I mean, something that really stood out to me is the fact that her mom and her grandma, they only give her air kisses. Mm-hmm. And she's also always trying to shrink herself um, in various situations so that her body does not touch someone else's. Mm-hmm. And these two things seem to be related here. Uh, is there s- something within that that you want readers to examine, to look at, you know, why is Malaya eating like this? Why mm-hmm. is she constantly searching, longing? Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You know, when we first meet Malaya, her relationship with food is joyous, right? You know, she she loves French fries. It's very imaginative. Like she likes thinking about the fries. As you mentioned, she's a, you know, she becomes a visual artist. So she's imagining what the fries look like, but also what they taste like and smell like. Um, the feeling, the kind of heat, the warmth of the fries, right? They be, they're a source of pleasure for her. Early in her life, food is a source of pleasure for her and enjoyment. There's a vibrancy to her relationship with food. But very early on, she learns that she's actually expected to feel very differently about food and about her body, right? That it shouldn't be about pleasure. It should be about shame. It should be about guilt, right? And so she's surrounded by women, especially in that first scene at the Weight Watchers meeting, she's surrounded by these women who feel guilty for, you know, everything they eat. And in fact, this is how they, you know, sort of a, a way in which they shape their lives is through this system of counting points and calories. And, you know, she's eight years old. She can barely count at all, really, right? And yet, you know, she's being expected to kind of structure her life around this this program. Um, and so, you know, in that way, her relationship with food changes over time, right? It, it begins joyful and vibrant. And then it, it turns into a way to kind of, you know, satiate a hunger, a deeper hunger, and to assuage a kind of pain, right? And she, this also is something that she learns from the women around her. When your relationship with your body and your life is structured around sort of constantly needing to change and it doesn't work, right? So, you, you know, you say, okay, I'm gonna, whatever, this is the diet I'm doing. I'm only gonna eat this many calories for whatever period of time. You know, inevitably your body needs more. So, you know, you you feel that you failed on the diet, you go for comfort, right? That feeling of failure requires and you want something that feels good. You go back to food. And so you're in this cycle, you know, of course, there've been many sort of ways of referring to it, yo-yo dieting, right? Sort of the circle or cycle of diet culture that food becomes, you know, just one point in that circle, in that wheel. And so all of the joy and the pleasure of food kind of goes away, right? And instead you're constantly, you know, sort of using food, or at least this is the case for Malaya. She becomes, you know, her relationship with food becomes such that it's not about the pleasure anymore. Instead, it's about sort of allaying guilt, allaying shame. As you pointed out, it's also about comfort, a lot more than pleasure and physical comfort. You know, at a certain point, she starts to kind of find a balance where she's like, okay, actually, I can take pleasure in food. I can enjoy the pleasure in food. I can also enjoy the comfort in food. And I can allow myself access to other pleasures of the body. And that's really the turning point for Malaya, where she realizes that, you know, I don't have to take on all of this body shame that I'm experiencing in the world around me. Instead, I can really imagine myself, my body, and food all as like sources of pleasure that can 
you know, literally feed me, nourish me, right? Give me the energy that I need to go out in the world and live a full, vibrant, pleasurable life. Throughout the novel, we see Malaya on this quest. Mm -hmm. You know, she's trying to figure out how to be a woman. And she closely examines all the women in her lives for clues and even some of her peers who she feels um, are just a little bit farther along in this than she is, um, you know, a little bit further along than she is. Mm -hmm. And this is an issue that I imagine would come into play through your academic work as well. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see overlap there between you know, the things that you study and write about in terms of, you know, gender studies mm -hmm. and the things that you're exploring here in fiction? Yeah, that's a great question. And I love the framing. You know, absolutely. I mean, my academic writing focuses on how Black women writers and queer writers of the African diaspora use language to kind of upset ideas about, you know, difference and power. So definitely thinking about things like race, gender, class, sexuality, but also ability and disability, body shape and size, right? So I spend a lot of time thinking about how other writers, especially, you know, more recent writers towards like the end of the 20th century through the current moment, how how these writers use their writing to kind of challenge ideas about what is normal and what is um, valuable, essentially, especially when it comes to women and queer people. And so I definitely sort of see myself, you know, trying to do something similar in Big Girl, for sure. My academic writing thinks a lot about how these writers sort of, you know, destabilize either, you know, sort of specific genres, you know, making up new genres or are more experimental within a given genre. Um, and, you know, Big Girl, I don't see as an experimental novel, although I really do use point of view to kind of, you know, occasionally pan out, you know, give a more global sense of what's happening with Malaya. And then, you know, very quickly get right to her inner world in a way that we don't that isn't necessarily expected of every novel, right? I, it's important to me that the reader feel as though they're sort of walking with Malaya through her life in her body, feeling the textures of her social experience, feeling the pain, feeling the pleasure, right? All of that. Um, and then there are moments where, again, the narrative kind of pans out and gives you language that she doesn't have, you know, because she's not old enough. And also, and sometimes that language doesn't exist yet as we've discussed. So in that way, I definitely see connections between my academic writing and the novel. What you said about sort of Malaya on this quest to learn about womanhood, absolutely. I mean, I think if anything, I think it, it you know, speaks to the extent to which we might think of womanhood as a kind of single stable thing, right? This is what a woman looks like. And yet, you know, for Malaya, that's, it's not, that's not a foregone conclusion, right? She, she comes to the conversation about womanhood from a point of view of thinking about multiplicity. She's thinking about all of the different ways to be a woman. And part of that is because of the body that she's in, right? As a teenager, you know, there are no women's clothes for her, right? She can't find women's clothes in her size, certainly nothing that she likes. So she ends up shopping at the big and tall men's section of the hip hop store, right? So she can get something that allows her to explore her gender, her sexuality, right? You know, that's something that's cool, that looks cool. You know, she loves Biggie Smalls and she's like, okay, this, you know, I feel like Biggie in this outfit, right? And it makes, it gives her a sense of a very different vision of womanhood when she's wearing men's clothes, but, you know, having these braids that she, you know, braids colors into her hair and she's got the eyeshadow and the lipstick, right? 
she's defining a vision of womanhood that fits herself and fits her body in a way that, you know, speaks to the kind of complexity of gender beyond, I think, how we often understand it. Another character who really uh, just stood out to me and I thought was so interesting was my mayor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she is often absolutely horrible to her daughter yes. and her granddaughter, but she has a colorful saying for every situation. It makes you think, it makes you laugh. I was wondering if you had a favorite my mayor saying mm. and was she sort of the most fun character to write? She was definitely a lot of fun to write. You know, she was hard to write too, because I mean, I really had to kind of pull back, you know, it's it's an interesting, interesting balance to strike as a writer where you've got this character who, you know, is mean, right? Like she's, you know, she's mean or many of the things that she says and does are mean. And yet she's, you know, hilarious um, and really wanting to strike that balance so that neither sort of pole of her character took over, right? Like I really wanted it to be clear that, you know, her meanness comes from a place of pain, that humor is a way of kind of, again, comforting herself sort of, right? And, you know, sort of papering over some of the really harsh, cruel things that she has to say. Um, and, you know, as we've been saying, like, if this is some of the levity and the, and the you know, the pleasure in a way, right? Like they, you know, all of these women are sitting around listening to the things that Mamere is saying, and, you know, there's a feeling that, okay, wait, I, I feel, I, I'm hurt. I feel really, I feel a way about this, but I also want to laugh. And how do I sit with that complexity, right? Like, how can I let both of these things be true at the same time? So yeah, she was a lot of fun to write for that reason, but she was also challenging to write for that reason. A favorite mom there saying that's, well, this isn't a saying per se, but there's a scene when, um, you know, Malaya's a teenager and kind of unexpectedly she ends up at Mamere's house and it's just the two of them. And, you know, I don't want to give too much away about it, but there's a scene where we finally see Mamere sort of not in control of her body. We see the body sort of like do its own thing. And that was a kind of, it was a, it was an interesting moment to write. Cause I, it was not, that wasn't what I was planning to happen in that scene. And somehow it just sort of happened, but I kept it because it really allowed us to see what happens when, you know, someone who is so great at kind of taking other people down, right? You know, with their, you know, their humorous, you know, antics, what happens when she has to take herself a little less seriously and when she has to acknowledge her own vulnerability to her body. Um, And that ends up being a moment of connection between her and Malaya that isn't about criticizing anybody or anyone's body, but rather it's about kind of accepting the body um, and it was, it's a real turning point in their relationship and in Malaya's life. So that, that moment was fun and surprising to write. Like I said, I didn't expect it to go in that direction. I was like, this is interesting and kind of weird, but all right, this is what we're doing, my Mary. Let's go. This book feels like a love letter to Harlem. Mm. You know, the community and all it has to offer to Malaya are such important parts of the story. And we see all the cr- characters grappling with how the neighborhood is changing. You know, they move in right before the crack epidemic happens and we see them, they're still living there as things are starting to gentrify. Mm -hmm. You know, mom and pop stores are closing and major chains are moving in. Why was it so important for you that your hometown be the setting for this book? Yeah, I appreciate that question. You know, in many ways, I I find that Malaya's story and Harlem's story at that era are kind of hand in hand, right? They're sort of in conversation with one another in this novel. 
Malaya is someone who, you know, we meet her at the point of a transition, an early point in a transition that will become a major change in her life. And, you know, she is, the transition is sort of, in some ways comes be, from beyond her, right? Like she isn't making a decision to change, you know, forces in her life are sort of asking her to change. And part of the task that she has is to figure out how to maintain herself while adapting to this kind of new world that she's experiencing from the women around her. And similarly, Harlem is in this moment of change, as you mentioned, right? It's the kind of height of the crack epidemic. And, you know, shortly after we start to see this major transition and transformation of the neighborhood, in both cases, there's a lot of loss, right? You know, this sense of a lost innocence, a lost sort of playfulness, maybe a loss of joy for Malaya, absolutely a loss of, you know, businesses, right? Sort of displacement of people, a loss of a kind of, cult, or the threat at least of a kind of loss of cultural identity in the case of Harlem. But also in both cases, there's a real sense of defiance, right? And a real determination to like hold on to what is central and what is most valuable. And it's always interesting to me to see how place and character connect in fiction and in, in real life, you know what I mean? Sort of how Malaya's story wouldn't be what it is if not for not only Harlem, but the changing background of Harlem. So she, as she is sort of changing and figuring out who she is, you know, on this quest to define herself as a young woman, she also sees the neighborhood really fighting to kind of hold on to itself and to its identity with varying degrees of success. Um, and, you know, again, not to give too much away, but by the end, her family becomes sort of part of that story, right? And that's really important for Malaya as well to see that, you know, she isn't the only person who's really sort of fighting for herself, right? In, in, in some ways that Harlem is also fighting for itself and that her family is part of that fight. As I was reading this book, I found myself doing a lot of reminiscing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I grew up during the 80s and 90s um, in a, not in Harlem, but this music that you yeah. talk about a lot in the book, it was everywhere. And it's so integral to Malaya's life. You know, she is a big fan of Biggie, as you said. You know, she likes BBD. She likes Mary J. Blige. I mean, there's a Madonna song that plays a prominent role in the book. And she even likes her dad's music. You know, her dad, Percy, he's playing Earth, Wind and & Fire and Stevie Wonder. And she's constantly hearing music. You know, when she goes out, there's always music playing. You know, it's coming from bodegas. It's coming from people's cars. Why was it so important for you that you gave readers this soundtrack to put mm -hmm. Malaya in a particular place and time? Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, it's so funny. As soon as you said reminiscing, of course, I hear Mary J. Yes. And also Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, absolutely. You know, music is a major source of joy for Malaya um, and for her family, right? Music, in some ways, you know, music does what does for Malaya and her family what I think the women in the family try to do through fat shame and, and fat phobia, right? It's a source of joy, of comfort, of pleasure, and, and a communal kind of bonding. It connects them across generations. And yet, you know, music does what, of course, you know, this criticism of bodies can't do, right? Because it's purely centered in joy. It's purely centered in imagination. And it constantly sort of replenishes, right? Like, you know, which is why Malaya loves to listen to songs on repeat, right? Or she'll listen to albums on repeat. It, it it just gives, you know, it doesn't really take anything from her. There is no pain. There is no injury. It's a constant comfort, a constant source of joy and pleasure. 
And it also kind of uh, reaffirms her relationship to the neighborhood, right? As you mentioned, she doesn't go to school in Harlem. So, you know, she's got this kind of multiple outsider status in some ways. And yet, even as a young girl, right, before she can, you know, go to the record store and buy a CD, she's listening to the radio. She's like listening to the music that's playing from the car radios outside on the block. And, you know, it's a way of kind of connecting to her community, even as, you know, because of, again, the crack epidemic, because of the fact that she goes to this predominantly white institution, she doesn't have those sort of like built-in interactions, right, with Harlem as a young child. Then as she gets older, she can walk around the neighborhood listening to her music, rocking her Tims and her, you know, her whatever, you know, big Carcani jeans, et cetera. And that allows her to feel a part of something larger than herself. And that's one of the themes, of course, that comes out in the film, I mean, in the in the novel, right, this idea that, you know, she understands herself as sort of the, she's always the largest thing in the room, right? She's the largest thing in the room. She's the largest person in the family. She's constantly looking for a way to feel in touch with something larger than herself. Music allows her to do that. Harlem allows her to do that. And eventually movement, you know, around physical space allows her to do that as well. I would like to just talk for just a moment about you know, what you'd like to read and mm -hmm. uh, a little bit about how that influenced your writing. So mm -hmm. do you have what you call like, or what I like to call go-to books, oh, yeah. uh, books that you find yourself reading over and over again? Um, you know, no matter how much time has passed, you know, you still want to pick that up and, and take it into your heart again. Yeah, a hundred percent. So you know, some of them, the books that I think about in my academic writing are are those go-to books. I think of, you know, I think of them almost as like a pantheon, right? So anything Audre Lorde, Toni Morrison, Entezaki Shange, and Jamaica Kincaid. And specifically for Morrison, The Bluest Eye, um, Sula, Jazz, Beloved also, those are kind of my four, but like I said, all of Morrison. Um, for Shange, her choreo poem for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough is just, you know, a classic text. I'm always giving, I keep copy, I keep extra copies in my office on campus so that when students come in and, you know, seem to be in need of a certain type of um, nourishment, I give them a copy of For Colored Girls, right? Also, um, Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo, which is Ntozaki Shange's first novel. Jamaica Kincaid, kind of, you know, everything. I mean, Lucy is my favorite Kincaid novel. Annie John, also autobiography of my mother. Kincaid's narrators, I just, you know, I feel like I could just like hang out with them forever. The way you described your experience reading Big Girl, it really, I, you know, I'm, it, it's humbling to me because that's how I feel about Kincaid. You know, sort of like I can read her now. I could just sit in her novels and hang out with her characters and you know, after the novel's done, I feel like the character is still with me, right? Um, she thinks a lot about complex mother-daughter relationships, the humor of, um, you know, the humor that sometimes is sort of wrapped up in cruelty between mothers and daughters. Uh, and so she's really instructive for me. And then Audre Lorde is just, you know, everything Lorde writes and has written, um, I, I find indispensable, you know, especially as a Black queer woman. She also talks about fatness and, you know, sort of body, various relationships to the body and pleasure, the erotic as a source of power. Um, I had the chance to write an introduction to her letters with a collection of her letters with a poet, Pat Parker, another Black lesbian poet, and getting to know her voice through her letters just really sort of brought to the fore for me how indispensable she is as a writer. And she's, you know, has, a, has had a major, major influence on me and my writing life. So those are my go-tos. Okay. Well, 
Uh, Mecca Jamila Sullivan, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your work. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Please go to our website, readmorepodcast.com to find out how you can win a free copy of Big Girl. And you can also help Mecca and the show by buying her book on our site. You can follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more. Thank you.